Hello and welcome to Plot Trists. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're reviewing Cold Hearted Break by Lisa Kleypas. So this was published in 2015 and is the first in the Raphael series. So listeners will know we just finished up covering Lisa Kleypas's Oh God, Hathaway series. <laughs> we're like, what was that family's name? Um, which we loved on the whole. And I'm sad to say Ravenel's is not off to a glowing start. <laughs> we have a lot to say about this book. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, before we start saying it, I guess we should probably read the jacket so you guys know, you know, what the book is about. You want to start us off, Lane? Sure. A twist of fate. Devin Ravenel. London's most wickedly charming rake, has just inherited an earldom. But his powerful new rank in society comes with unwanted responsibilities and more than a few surprises. His estate is saddled with debt and the late earl's three innocent sisters are still occupying the house, along with Kathleen, Lady Trenier, a beautiful young widow whose sharp wit and determination are a match for Devon's own. A clash of wills. Kathleen knows better than to trust a ruthless scoundrel like Devon, but the fiery attraction between them is impossible to deny, and from the first moment Devon holds her in his arms, he vows to do whatever it takes to possess her. As Kathleen finds herself yielding to his skillfully erotic seduction, only one question remains. Can she keep from surrendering her heart to the most dangerous man she's ever known? One, no, she cannot. Two, (laughs) our readers or listeners are not going to be able to see this because obviously we talk to them. We don't make them read things. I don't understand why so much of this jacket is filled with ellipses. And then there is one M dash stuck in the middle of the second paragraph. Yeah, the the whole yeah, the whole thing is 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 ridiculous. That said, this is a very good formatting for the book that Wizard. we get. I think it's just it's some weird dark formatting magic that should never have happened. Yeah. Uh I will say though that I actually have no problems with this jacket because what you read is what you get in the book. Does it make any sense? No, but it is what the book is about. It's what the first half of the book is about. But I don't know what the second half was about. Uh, I don't think Lisa Claypitz knows what the second half of this book is about, Lane. Okay, okay. So this week we generated a random number of 49 to try to create our own summaries. And I think we both sort of deviated from the summarizing because the jacket did that pretty well. Mm -hmm. So, Meg, what was your 49-word summary? All right, here it is, Lane. Let's hit the Clayfus highlights. Unexpected heir to a bankrupt earldom in Hampshire must use all means at his disposal, including industry and newfangled farming techniques, to salvage the estate. His new responsibilities also include a family of sisters and an unsuitable woman he immediately hates, but also wants. Hmm. my, My problem with this, summary, Meg, is that you just 
uh, got ahead of the trope section a little bit. <laughs> uh, my problem with my summary is that I also just summarized um, the Hathaway series. So <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Minus the woman he immediately hates. Uh, no, he immediately hates Marx. Remember? Oh, I thought you were just talking about like the beginning of it. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. If you yeah, break the, it into several different people, that's just yeah. the Hathaway series. The, the only difference is that here it's an earldom and there it was a viscountcy. <laughs> oh, so it's not at all even remotely similar. What are you talking about? <laughs> what am I talking about? <laughs> all right. Uh, what's your summary like? The most interesting characters in this book are a murderous horse and an uncastrated pig. Neither of those are euphemisms. Hampshire remains the only profitable swath of land while the rest of England's aristocracy falls into decline. I'm tired of books where female characters learn to be less shrewish. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. Although, I don't know if she learns to be less shrewish. She articulates several times that everything is her fault because she's a shrew. <laughs> so whether or not as a character she actually learns this lesson it was clearly articulated in the book and i hate it that's possible yeah i mean i will say we avoided this with marx because marx is never like it's my fault because i'm sure she's like no this is me like take it or leave it <laughs> look if we can spend this whole book comparing to kathleen to marx we're going to focus on the wrong things that were bad about this book yeah yeah uh so what are the tropes Lane? Oh my God. So in theory, the biggest trope in this book is enemies to lovers. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I think this, I was writing the tropes and I was like, I think this is supposed to be enemies to lovers, but I don't know. Didn't, did not work for me. So they'd never met each other prior to the book. Right. So it's not like there's any history that's slowly being revealed to the reader. You're just supposed to believe he walks in as the heir to her dead husband's estate. Mm -hmm. And they just immediately are oil and water. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, he is a total asshole to her. Yeah. And she, she, I mean, she doesn't seem to be that horrible to me, honestly. I mean, she's a grieving widow who is trying to do the best that she can with the estate and with her three sisters-in-law. So I, I can't say that I sympathize, but I definitely thought she had more of a reason to be shrewish than he had a reason to be a big old dick. No, he, she didn't start out mean. Yeah. But she did jump to a lot of conclusions about his character in the first couple of chapters that proved unfounded. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Once again, though, I don't care because this book was bad. <laughs> it really was. Oh. Um, and then, as I've pointed out in my summary, he is the unexpected heir to this earldom. He never thought he would inherit. Yep. Um, both of them are sort of sad, tragic. He's an orphan, obviously, because he's an earl now yeah um yeah his parents his dad died in a sad tragic accident and then his mom who was always sort of he doesn't know whether she's alive or dead right yeah he doesn't actually know she basically abandoned him in his i guess he was in his teens 
Right? Yeah, she abandoned him and his brother, so they basically raised themselves. So we, it's not 100% sure he's an orphan, but, like, he has no parents to speak of. Right. She was abandoned by her parents and just, like, given to some random family? Yep. That is, that's what happened. And she still has, she has a lot of daddy issues. <laughs> Several times over. Yes. Because she's got the guy who raised her dad, and then she's got the guy who abandoned her dad. Mm-hmm. She, it's all she very has, weird. Yeah, she she has issues with with the men in her life. Let's just say that. Yeah. Um, um, hey, Meg. Yeah. Hey, Meg, what's, like, your least favorite trope in all oh, of romance? In all of romance? It's, this, it's, it's in this book. It's the virgin <laughs> widow. Oh, God, I hate it. So annoying. And here's the thing. She was only married for like three days. Yeah. Before her husband was killed. So it's mm-hmm. not the most egregious example of virgin widow because mm-hmm. like you can believe that over a three day period, even newlyweds wouldn't have sex for justifiable reasons. Yeah. But the way it's played in this book as some sort of mysterious scandal pissed me off so much. I didn't care how rational it was. Oh, it's so, so stupid, too, you know? Oh, the And to be honest, so most of the time when it's a virgin widow, they don't find out. Um, they've been married for years, usually, and then he dies. Right. So for some reason, she's a widow, you know. God, what are the reasons? Well, some of the reasons are they're gay. The husband was gay. Or and here's the thing. I don't, in those situations, I'm not, I'm never pissed off that the virgin widow didn't sleep with her husband. Right. I'm mad that she didn't then go get some on the side. Exactly. Or after being widowed. It's anyway, neither here nor there with this book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. It's here. It's, it's, she's like, is this, I hope we're not getting too spoilery. Although I think we're honestly at this point, take it for granted. We're going to spoil this book because it's just so weird. Um, I don't know what there is to spoil. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah, so she she's like, oh no, it, I actually never was married, and if people found out that it wasn't consummated, I would lose my widow's jointure or something like that. And I was like, that like I don't think that's true. I don't. I I think that that they were married. It happened, you know. Well, there's also reasons that I mean, granted, I am not an expert in marital law of England times from the 18th and 19th centuries. So like, do not quote me on this. <laughs> But, like, there are a reason, there's a reason soldiers, like, got married on their deathbed. Right. To their girlfriends so that they're, like, they would be their wives and they would be eligible for a widow's pension. Yeah. Wasn't it a major plot point in Downton Abbey? (laughs) Yes. Meg, don't go giving away my historical sources. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I've seen that, I've seen that in literature several times and have heard historical stories of it happening. And granted, I don't know how much English law would have evolved from this period in time to World War One. But the idea that a woman didn't have the rights of being a widow on the basis of whether or not the marriage was consummated is very weird to me. And I mean, I don't know if I'm supposed to draw back to like Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, who were only allowed to get married because they claimed she never actually consummated her relationship with her husband and therefore the marriage wasn't real. But I just, I have a really hard time believing that English law hadn't evolved by this point, that, like, your husband being tragically killed shortly after you were married, somebody would come in and go, well, if you didn't consummate, you don't get your benefits. 
right? <laughs> you're sorry, you're not a countess anymore. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, I think you love the next trope a lot, Lane. What? Oh, God. Yeah. She's a woman who never cries. Because that's like her whole defining characterization is her having like a spine of steel and no emotion. Except she spends the whole book crying. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think it's supposed to be like somehow subconsciously she and Devin are meant to be together. So she cries around him all the time. Right. Like she doesn't even let herself see the truth of her own emotions. But now that she's found the man who is mm-hmm. right for her, she can like show her feelings or some shit. Well, and it's the same, it's the same thing for him. He hates when women cry because he feels like they're manipulating him. But somehow when Kathleen cries, he just feels protective. Anyway, they hate it. Uh, um, she is a great horsewoman and wears pants a lot. But the fact that she is in pants was a major plot point, And I rolled my eyes so hard at this. So she wears pants like under a riding skirt. Mm-hmm. And she'll take the skirt off in the barn, right? go out, ride the horse, and then re-put on the skirt over the trousers before she leaves the barn. Right. She, in this scene, forgets her skirt. And I said to myself out loud, oh, Devin's there. Of course. Like, the second she was traipsing around the house in breeches, I was like, oh, this is going to be a plot point. Okay. Oh, yeah. And it's it, it comes up several times, actually. Uh-huh. So, and by it comes up, you... I am referring to exactly what you think I'm referring to. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's subtle. (laughs) It's very subtle. (laughs) She is a female character we've seen several times before, including Hathaway's Amelia, um, whose sole motivation at this point is sort of whatever she has to do to keep the family together. And in her case, the family is her three sisters-in-law. Her three sisters-in-law, who, again, she was only married to her husband for three days, but somehow she's, like, super close to her sisters-in-law. She's been there, what, for two or three months? Yeah, I think it's three months past his death that this is all going down. And um, somehow she's super protective of them. I don't know. I found this kind of stupid, but whatever, you know. Yeah, me too, especially because Lisa Klepis does nothing to try to justify it. Nothing. Like, if the couple that had taken Kathleen in hadn't had kids, or if they'd raised her separately from the family, and so the second she fell into a family, she, like, clung to it immediately. But there is no justification for why suddenly these three women are her whole life. No, none. None at all. Uh, There there is a near-death experience, although this is not the final crisis near-death experience that that teaches in there in love. This actually comes in the, the middle of the book, which is kind of But funny. it felt like the end. Well, that's the thing. It's like, it felt like the end. And then you're like, wait, I still have like 10 more chapters to read. It was weird. Hmm. Um, there is a pregnancy prevention fail. There is. Um, there certainly So obviously, is. if you think too hard on... The topic of contraception and needing to prevent pregnancy, you can guarantee it ain't going to work. Yeah. <laughs> and there is an animal who can sense the quality of a person. It's the murderous horse. It's the horse in this case, yes. <laughs> so, um, so, dear listeners, yeah. <laughs> you might be able to sense where this review is going. <laughs> this Okay. If you're not sure where it's going, we're just going to tell you right now. 
this book was really bad, guys. And it sucks because Lisa Klavis is a really good writer. Yeah. And in this case, her ability to construct a sentence wasn't diminished. But holy hell, what was this plot? Yeah. Uh, yes. And then, you know, the, the other weird thing. Well, not weird thing. The other thing to note, I was uh, talking to Lane about this, but she published Love in the Afternoon in 2010, and then she took a five-year hiatus from historical romance. So between 2010 and 2015, when this one came out, she only wrote contemporaries. So she wrote a couple of contemporary series. And then this was her grand return to historical romance. And I remember people were like so excited that Lisa Kleypas was writing again. It was going to be great. And I remember picking this book up and I was like, what is this book? What is this? It's almost sensory, you guys. <laughs> yeah. Almost. Almost. So I, I will say, I will say that I think the book really suffers from being the first book in a series. That's what this book feels like. This book feels like it is the first book in a series because it sets up like how many people we meet. So who do we meet? We meet, of course, Devin and Kathleen, who the book is supposed to be about, but who mm -hmm. have no narrative consistency at all. We meet Devin's brother, West, who has yeah. his own issues, who Devin is trying to motivate by getting him to help on the estate. Mm -hmm. There are the three sisters. So there's Helen, who's, what, 21? Mm -hmm. And she's just this ethereal beauty who raises orchids and has never been off the estate. <laughs> and then the crazy twins. And the They're crazy twins, yeah. The two businessmen friends of Devin and West. Yes. The department store owner who gets several POV chapters. Yup. So Reese Winterborn and um, Mr. Severin. Uh, <laughs> so we all have an idea of where this whole series is going. But for this specific book, th th there's, it's just weird, guys. It's just weird. I wish I could talk the problems in this book up to introducing too many character syndrome. Yeah. But the reality is, the way this narrative is structured, like, it, that can't be the only thing to blame. So, they yeah. meet. They butt heads. Immediately, yeah. He decides he wants her. She's blaming herself for her husband's death and thinks he's incredibly inappropriate. Yep. He has this near-death experience that inspires him to actually want to pursue her. Then they spend the second half of the book disagreeing about the terms of whatever relationship they're going to have <laughs> while he plots behind her back to build a railroad and introduce his friends to the eligible sisters. My, my favorite part. I think, I think that's what it was about. Yeah. And, and there's a shopping spree and a rape threat. Yes. My, my favorite part about their disagreement. So they've, they're already sleeping together. They slept with, with each other several times. Yeah. And he and um, she she goes to leave and he's like, where are you leaving? She goes, this isn't an affair. And he's like, what? What? Like what? And she's like, we can't call it an affair because affairs always end. And and this 
we're just going to have like a few liaisons. And it's like, wait, it's like, just call it an affair. If you know, it's going to end. Like, what is she, what is she, it didn't make any logical sense. <laughs> well, what I hated about it, because like, okay, fine. She makes a point about how affairs are always what the men in charge. And this isn't going to be about when you decide to kick me out of bed, whatever. Hated it. Didn't really get it. But like, fine, if that's the logic she's working with. But then why did neither of them ever, ever talk about more than an affair? Yeah. Like, especially because silly me for reading something. He asks her in one of their first conversations after they're no longer sniping at one another when she can take off the widow's weave. Yes. No, when from, she could remarry, when she did. So like, Clayton was clearly as you're telegraphing that he wants to get married. And then he won 80s after his near-death experience where he decides he wants to be with her. Then he becomes afraid of marriage? It's it's from the very, the very beginning. So at the very beginning, they somehow just like, they dislike each other right away. She pretty logically dislikes him because he says he's going to base, he's going to sell everything and right. sisters out. So it kind of makes sense that she's like, okay, that's not cool. Um, but he, to live up to the title of the book is being cold hearted. And he's, he's actually like quite mean to her several times. He even t- thinks about how great it's going to be. He's going to make her walk home in the rain or something. <laughs> and and until how- he finds out the reason she never cries. And then he yeah. goes to get her. God, then he goes to get her. And then from that moment, he goes to get her. From that moment when she gets upset because they go to the stable, she gets upset. And from that moment, he's like, okay, I want her. From that second, he's like, okay, I'm going to keep the estate. I'll live up to my responsibilities. Yep. Um, I want to, I want her, like I want to have her. And I, so for me, I thought from that moment, yeah. was like, okay, I want to marry this woman. She's going to be my countess, whatever. Same. You know? And then you're right. Later he's like, we can't get married. And I'm like, what? what? <laughs> I really didn't understand it at all. It's very confusing. That's what I'm saying too. And And also you didn't, you got no sense of why they were attracted to each other. If this had been a slow burn, um, and it wasn't like a on a dime, he was like, yeah, I want this woman. If this had been more of a, he slowly came to respect her and she slowly came to respect him, I, I could have been a little bit more on board. I yeah, think. and I think this was supposed to be more of a, like, anger is the opposite side of the coin is love. Like, they're right. both right there. But it just mm-hmm. didn't, it was never justified in text. no. There, there wasn't enough time spent with these characters to develop them. No. Um, so that's why I think it did suffer from just having too many characters. Because we spent way too much time developing West. Like, West has so much character development in this book. So does Reese. So does Reese. So does Helen. Yeah. Um, and, and no, it's a and, fair point. Yeah. I'm just saying that's not the only problem. No, no it's not. <laughs> And I will say, like, many of the characters I was intrigued by, like Helen, Reese, and West, I will say Pandora and Cassandra just really were annoying the entire the entire time. So they're supposed to well, be 19. They, they come off like precocious six-year-olds. <laughs> and I'm not said, saying, like, I they act like... 13, but yeah, six, yeah. But I, and I don't, I don't mean they acted like they were six, but I'm saying they seem to serve the same narrative purpose. Yes. Like making precociously insightful observations and causing mayhem. Yes, and I'm like they're 19 years old. They're 19, you know. Yeah, no, it was they were bizarre characters. They were really weird characters. Um, 
<laughs> so Kathleen says in the books, like in one of the first conversations she's having with Devin, that the Ravenel parents had named all their children after Greek mythology. They're going to have some questions. Yes. Because Kathleen reflects, oh, isn't it interesting that Helen is the only one who was named after a mortal? And I think Lane and I both stopped right there. We were like, wait a minute. <laughs> That's just not true. <laughs> okay, like, so first of all, Pandora is, like, made as the first mortal woman. Yep. So she's the only one who could be slightly, like, demigod-esque. But, but she's not. still, like, supposed to be the first human yes. woman. So Pandora mortal. Yes. Mortal. Mortal. Helen, Helen yes, she's mortal. mortal. So they're all mortals. And then and Theo, which I'm assuming is short for Theodore, he's also a mortal, right? Is he even in Greek mythology? I mean, it's a Greek name. <laughs> well, like, I'm dead serious. I'm reading Mythos by Stephen Fry right now. Who the F is Theo? Anyway, um, so that was really weird and basically just confirmed to us that no editor anywhere had a hand in this book. <laughs> um, maybe Theo is short for Prometheus. <gasps> yes. Ah, Lane, I love your thinking. <laughs> I mean, that's the closest I can get. And he wasn't even a god, he was a titan. <laughs> But he wasn't mortal, so. Fair. He wasn't mortal, yeah. but none of them are named after Greek gods, to be clear. No. It was, it was so, it was just such a weird line because I, I understand that she started, she was trying to set something up for the next book, but, you know, like some subtle whatever. Oh, why was Helen treated differently than her, you know, <laughs> siblings but if you want to set that up you have to be accurate about it <laughs> right otherwise you've got your uber nerds like meg and i who get stuck on that one sentence for like five minutes trying to like deconstruct it like thinking like i was like it's good i was like wait i was like she is immortal isn't she i'm pretty sure <laughs> and then you start looking it up on wikipedia <laughs> yep oh man oh, it's fine it's not fine and it sucks and it should have been fixed <laughs> So Winterborn and Helen are clearly this series, Win and Maripin. <laughs> right. In that they get a lot of time in the first book. And she nurses him back to health. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh. And that was okay, I guess. I was I more interested it. in their narrative than... Kathleen and Devin. Oh, absolutely. I was like, oh, wow. There was a lot of Helen and Reese in this book. Like, there's a lot of them. Like, to the point that, spoiler alert, there's an engagement in this book. Mm-hmm. Like, it gets real developed. Yeah. And, and then. And then, so, oh, God, Kathleen, I will say she was really annoying in this scene. Yeah. Oh, totally. Because basically, Helen makes some dramatic pronouncement that we've all made before. I never want to see him again, right? Yeah. And she takes it upon herself to go see Reese and be like, Helen wants to break the engagement. She never wants to see you again, ever. You know? Like the worst kind of meddling, gossipy friend. Right. And she does it intentionally, not even in passing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Unprompted. Uh, no, it was, it was awful. Which she was awful. And then what does Reese do? Oh, that's when he threatens to rape her. Yeah. And I was like, wait, wh- like what? And again, you at at the end of the book, you know, he would never do it. But like if your go to when you're pissed off at a woman is to threaten to rape her, that's not cool. Right. It was sort of like a they think he's this is getting into tropes from the next book, but he's a common of common birth. Yes. And has like a ton of complexes about the aristocracy. So he assumes this Earl's family is like sneering at him. Right. And so, you know, men who feel emasculated and lesser will obviously respond by trying to force themselves sexually on the women who are putting them down. Yeah. So it was, it was not cool. I was, I was totally into the Reese Helen relationship until that happened. And I was like, Oh, she's well rid of him. Except not because the next book is called spoiler alert, marrying Mr. Winterborn. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, I, I just pretend like this never happened. Honestly, the way that scene played out was so bizarre. Like, it emotionally escalated so quickly. Yes. And even with Helen's mother, not Helen, with Kathleen's meddling, I was not expecting her to march over there and, like, meddle as much as she did. No, yeah. So everything from what she was saying to his disproportionate reaction to, like, the random ballot, I was like, this scene is from a sinister. It came out of nowhere. No one is behaving in a way that I feel like was established previously in the book. Kathleen never would have gone to his house. Kathleen never would have acted for Helen in this way. It was. Reese never would have threatened rape. I don't, I don't know what I'm reading. So I think we'll be fine for the next book because obviously this didn't happen in a real, like actual world. The first episode of Gossip Girl where (laughs) yes, Chuck does threaten to rape Jenny and sort of try to, but in that episode, Chuck also rides the bus. <laughs> so you can't trust anything the characters did in that episode. Right. That's the thing. I'm just like, eh, can't trust it. So probably didn't yep. happen. Exactly. Um, I just want to make it clear again. I don't understand what the arc of this relationship was. Mm-hmm. Their feelings for each other vacillated so wildly from scene to scene. Yeah. And the ending felt so unearned. Oh, the ending. Oh, Lord, I know. And, like, there's a sex scene in the middle, the one that sort of precipitates the final conflict that lasts, like, the last third of the book in this love story about the two of them. Yeah. Where she's crying about how her dad didn't love her, so (laughs) they fuck on the floor of the dining room? Yeah. It's just really weird. Like, there, it really did veer into Simster at times. So, so she's crying, and he's like, come on my lap, so I'll comfort oh, you. The woman who never cries is yeah. crying again. And so, and the man who never comforts women is comforting a woman again. Um, so she's sitting on his lap, and then she's, she's like, crying, and then, and then they start laughing about something, and then they're just, like, they just, like, have to have each other. And this- she, okay. Let's talk about this because the same thing happens in this book as what happens in The Duke and I, except that Kathleen knows how babies are made. And it's not on purpose. It's not on purpose. Neither of them are trying to make a baby. They just get lost in the throes of passion, and so he comes inside of her. Well, and, and he's like, he's like, stop, Kathleen. He's like, get off. And she's just like, <laughs> 
I'm sorry. Like, he, he hadn't counted on what a good rider she was. And so yeah. her powerful thighs. Correct. That is literally <laughs> the phrase in the text, her powerful thighs. Um, <laughs> it killed me. <laughs> no, I think the difference between the Duke and I in this scene is obviously intent. Yeah. And in the case of the book, um, inebriation. Yeah. But the thing that bothered me about this sequence as, as a follow-up to their first encounter, which wasn't sexual, but the first time she cries and they like see each other as humans and whatever, he spends the whole time she is sobbing in his arms about the death of her husband, getting hard, mm-hmm. and thinking about how he has never desired a woman more. Yep. I am really disturbed overall by how turned on he is by her emotional devastation. <laughs> right. Like it's particularly arousing for him. Yeah. And I felt very uncomfortable several times. Yeah. Um, so anything offensive other than the the Winterborn threatening to rape Kathleen and also the fact that Devin gets really turned on by her emotional outpouring of crying? Um, her dead husband. Yeah. For their three days of marriage, spent the whole time basically either trying to rape her or berating her for not letting him rape her. Yeah. Uh, and, or, and, or drunk at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know what you want to do with that information. Um, one more thing just before, I don't know. I hated, guess how much I hated the ending. Nick. Oh, I, I knew you would hate the ending to this book lane. <laughs> it was atrocious on new levels. Yeah. Um, um, anything else meant you? N- no, nothing. I mean, the thing is like, <laughs> I think there probably should have been something that offended me, but I, I don't even, I don't even know. I've been, I've been like desensitized because this book is so weird. <laughs> it's very weird. Um, so was this book sexy? Right in this book, there, there's a lot of sex in this book. I thought all of it was kind of creepy. Yeah. So there's half the time he's turned on because she's in emotional distress. And the other half of the time, he's sort of threatening her. Yes, he is. <laughs> I, shouldn't even, I shouldn't be laughing about this. <laughs> and not like in a serious way, not like I'm going to beat the shit out of you or something. But there's one scene where like he's opening up a carriage. It's parked. Don't worry. It's not true carriage sex. I did like it, though. I was like, ooh, nice variation on the carriage sex theme. It was objectively hot, but the way he got her into the carriage was like, you either get up in there or, no, she tries to flee. And he's like, if you flee, I chase you, and then I make you do what I want sexually. And then he does, and then he forces her into the carriage. And, like, you know in her head she's consenting, but the whole thing reads this really weird non-con role play. Yes. I did not like it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't like it. But I liked it, though. It's well written. It's Lisa Kleypas. These characters were bonkers. And all I could think about during the sexy parts was like, I don't know if they both should be here right now. (laughs) Right? And then she does this, she does this thing that it's like the, it's the, um, the, the hurt comfort sex. Mm Mm-hmm. So he he gets injured being heroic, and she goes in to, I don't even know, 
if she goes in to talk to him or just goes in to make sure he's he's okay and then it turns into this you know sexual interlude on his sick bed and it's very sexy but it's also like would he really be thinking about that right then you know well and even the first night they have sex she has a nightmare that he's dead yeah right after he's injured so she runs to his door to check on him and one thing leads to another i'm like once again what initiated the sexual encounter was incredible fear like i just even when it wasn't necessarily problematic between the two of them I was just like these aren't sexy situations yeah but I mean the sex is plentiful and explicit I will say that much if you just accepted the sex scenes and not what came immediately before after they were objectively good (laughs) in context I did not like them (laughs) this book this book is so it's so weird. And it's it's tough because we all know Lisa Clavis Lisa can do better. You know? Yup. So, anyway, are you excited for the rest of the series, Lane? I mean, no, because I was excited for Reese and Helen, and then he threatened to rape <laughs> Kathleen out of nowhere. But, I mean, you know that that didn't really happen, so. That's also true. So I'm honestly, I don't recommend this book, but I reserve the right to revise that statement if I like marrying Mr. Winterborn enough to think this one was necessary. That's that's the thing. Uh, I I have certainly said before that the only reason I would reread this book was for the Helen and Reese scenes. Yeah, the, um, the scenes where both of them were on the page together were fine. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about. When where Reese is introduced and then where he and Helen are together, mm-hmm. that's all I need. And then, oh, she gives him an orchid and he takes care of it. <laughs> it's like the world's most fragile flower, and she totally expects it to die. And the, she knows she loves him when he doesn't kill it. <laughs> it's such a subtle metaphor. I loved it's it. So subtle. <laughs> So basically, guys, this book is bonkers and not very good, but it's It's not fun enough to be truly bonkers, which is the real. I needed, rather than trying to make this book better, I needed this book to be like two degrees worse. (laughs) Right? I needed it to veer more into like, this is so far from rational, it's just a good time. (laughs) I mean, that that is a very valid point. But I will say we had a lot of fun talking about it. So hit that going for it. Yeah, more fun than reading it. (laughs) If you guys enjoy the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. And check us out on Goodreads and Instagram at Patris. Thank you for listening.